Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible is open up to Philippians, the second chapter. Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to begin in just a moment. Going to read a few verses there that will help to set up everything that we want to uh, talk about and to think about from the Word of God today. Philippians chapter 2 is where you need to be looking at in your Bible. It is a wonderful day. It is the first day of the week, what we often refer to as the Lord's Day. It is the day when God's people come before Him and give their hearts and their minds and their attention to Him and to His things. And so we want to be about the business of that right now as we turn our attention to His book. Read with me, if you will, in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes this beginning in verse 5. Philippians 2 beginning in verse 5. Paul says, "...have this mind among yourselves..." which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. Imagine that someone is visiting our worship assembly for the very first time. Someone who's maybe never even stepped foot into a church building. They've never even read the Bible. They don't know the first thing about Christianity. After spending an hour or so in our worship services, what will they have seen and what will they have heard? Well, amongst many other things, they will have maybe heard us sing some songs about the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross, the old rugged cross, they will have maybe heard a man make some comments at the Lord's table to help prepare our minds to partake of the Lord's Supper. They will have maybe looked around the room and they would see people at a various point in the service maybe eating this little piece of flat bread and drinking a little cup of grape juice, those emblems that represent the body and the blood of Jesus that was given At the cross, they will have heard prayers, no doubt, thanking God for His wonderful work of sending Jesus to the cross. Maybe that person looks around in the assembly and they notice somebody who's got a necklace with a little pendant on it in the shape of a a cross. Maybe they see a Bible or a Bible cover and embroidered on the front of it is an image of the cross. Then the preacher gets up. Reads Philippians chapter 2. Talks about what Jesus did for us through His death on the cross. Everything that we do is about the cross, isn't it? We are centered upon, we are focused upon, we are thinking about and talking about and singing about and praying about the cross. It is much more than a piece of wood, isn't it? In fact, Paul says in our opening passage that the cross is really the primary reason that Jesus came to this earth. We are all about the cross, aren't we? And yet sometimes I wonder, I wonder if we fully understand the significance of the cross. I'm not talking about understanding the facts concerning Jesus' suffering. And I'm not even talking about understanding all of the mechanics of a Roman crucifixion. If you've been a part of our Wednesday night Bible study in Mark, then recently you know we've we've talked about that. We've come to a better understanding about those things. All of that is helpful. But what I'm talking about this morning is, is do we understand what really took place at the cross? Do we understand that the cross was filled with triumphs? 
that it is a glorious thing that took place there? Do we grasp the accomplishments of the cross? Why Jesus died and what He achieved through His death on the cross? Do we, do we get it? Well, this morning I do want to talk about one of the most fundamental and central truths in all of Christianity. I want to talk about the cross of Jesus Christ. As I said a moment ago, we've been studying about the cross in the last couple of weeks in our Mark Bible study on Wednesday night. And I specifically wanted to slot this sermon in this place because I wanted to flesh out and I wanted to develop some of the key ideas of what the cross means for us. What it does for us. What Jesus did on our behalf some 2,000 years ago. To do that this morning, I'd like to use a passage in Romans chapter 3 where Paul discusses just a few of the triumphs of the cross. There's really no way that we could discuss everything that was accomplished at the cross because if we did that, we'd be here all day and all night and all week. But in Romans chapter 3, Paul does highlight three things in particular that Jesus accomplished on our behalf when He went to the cross. Can you read that passage with me? In Romans chapter 3, I'm reading beginning in verse 21. In Romans 3 and in verse 21, Paul writes there, Romans 3, 21, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's just start right there in verse 25. There's a word there in verse 25, and Paul talks about it. Paul talks there about propitiation. Propitiation. Jesus accomplished propitiation on the cross. The question is, what does that mean? What is propitiation? That's not a word that we use a whole lot, is it? If your mechanic told you, oh boy, you're, it's bad, your, your propitiator's all broken. You're going to have to replace the whole thing. How many of us would kind of just scratch our heads and say, uh, okay, I guess, whatever you say, because, well, because we don't even know what propitiation is. Well, you should know that the Bible talks about propitiation. In fact, on a handful of occasions, the Bible uses that term. Would you step out of Romans for a moment? Look with me in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, lots of Bible today, so get those Bibles working. In Hebrews chapter 2, I'm reading in verse 17. In Hebrews 2 and in verse 17, the writer says there, talking about Jesus, he says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Let me add to that what John says. John uses that word a couple of times in his epistle in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 2, here's the first of those. In 1 John chapter 2, I'm reading in verse 2, John says, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Maybe just turn over a page to chapter 4. In 1 John 4 and in verse 10, John says, In this is love 
Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, the Bible is very comfortable with that word. What exactly does that mean? That Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Well, it is a word that means to avert the wrath of God. That's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. He averted, He turned away God's wrath. As sinful people, if we are ever going to be able to be in a relationship with a holy God, then something had to be done to appease His righteous anger. And that is exactly what propitiation is all about. It is turning away the wrath of God. You know, maybe the reason that we don't talk about propitiation all that much is because we really just don't like to think about the wrath of God being poured out and being expressed towards sinners. That's just, uh, that's just not a real pleasant thought, is it? But would you look with me in the book of Romans again? In Romans chapter 5... I need to stitch together a couple of different passages. And the first of those is in Romans 5. In Romans 5 and in verse 10, here's a verse that not many people are willing to think about or at least apply to themselves. In Romans chapter 5 and in verse 10, Paul says this, Romans 5 verse 10, he says, For if while we were enemies, enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. How many of us, before we were baptized, thought about of ourselves as being enemies of God? Who thought about that? Who thought about that? That before I obeyed the gospel, I was God's enemy. Man, that's a, that's a harsh and strong thing to have to think about. But would you look now with me in Romans chapter 1? In Romans chapter 1, Paul takes that a step further. It's not just that we're on opposing sides with God. No, God does something about that to people who are His enemies. In Romans 1 and in verse 8, or excuse me, verse 18, Romans 1, 18, For the wrath of God, it is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Maybe another way to say that verse would be the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against His enemies. It is clear from these passages that being an enemy of God, being in opposition to God, that's not a trivial thing. Our ungodliness, our unrighteousness, it earns, it merits us the wrath of a holy God. As sinners, as sinners, we are not in any position to demand or to expect anything from God except His anger. And that is what enemies of God deserve. We deserve His anger and His wrath. I want to be very clear here as I talk about all of that. This is certainly not to give the impression that God is some sort of, of spoiled child, some, some petulant kid who doesn't get his way and so he throws this big cosmic temper tantrum and he flies off the handle in a fit of rage. That's not what this is talking about here. When we talk about God's wrath, what we're talking about is we're talking about righteous anger. This is the kind of anger that you and I feel Whenever we watch the news and the reports are about some murderer who was absolutely guilty, everybody knew it, it was as clear as day, but he got released because of some loophole, because of some technicality in the judicial system. How do you feel when that happens? You feel anger. It is a righteous anger. 
This is the kind of anger that you feel when some fake charity is exposed as being a scam and you realize that you've been sending money thinking that you are helping this good cause, they're making these donations to a good, a good thing for somebody who is really in need only to find out that it was going to line some evil person's pocket. What do we feel in those moments? We feel indignation. We feel righteous anger. And that is the anger that God feels expressed towards those who would refuse His will, those who would refuse Him, those who rebel against His word, those who are sinners. And that means, that means you and me. Somebody maybe would say about that, well, I don't want that. I don't want God's wrath. I don't want God to be angry at me. What a frightening thought that God would be upset with me. God's wrath being poured out on me. I don't want that. Then I'll tell you what you need. What you need is you need propitiation. That's what you need. You need God's wrath averted. God's wrath turned away. God's wrath appeased. And Jesus, Jesus did that for us. He endured God's wrath by shedding His own blood, going to the cross, so that we who are the enemies of God might become friends of God. It is through His suffering, His sacrifice, His death, that the wrath of God was turned away from us. Jesus propitiated on behalf of helpless sinners like us. And He accomplished that at the cross. It's not the only accomplishment and triumph of the cross. Because as you turn back to Romans chapter 3, notice with me in verse 24, in Romans 3 and in verse 24, Paul makes mention, secondly, of redemption. Redemption through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What's that all about? What does it mean to have redemption? Well, in order for us to fully understand redemption, we need to understand what sin does to us. Because not only does sin earn us God's wrath, but sin also captures us. It takes us captive. Jesus talks about that in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, as Jesus is talking to some Jews here, in fact these are some Jews who seem to have some belief working in them, He talks to them about how they need freedom. They need to be set free, how the truth can set them free. That then causes them to ask this question in John 8 verse 33. They said, well, we're the offspring of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. I would dare say that this is something that all of us know without even having to read John 8. We know that when we sin, we are captured by it. That we are enslaved to it. In particular, we are held under the guilt of sin. You know, how many people today are yearning for release, any kind of release from the guilt of their own wrongdoing? People who know that they have not lived right. People who know that they have made God angry. People who are seeking then any kind, some kind of relief from that guilt. Anything that even if it is for just a moment that will drown out the guilt of their sin, whether that's drugs and alcohol kind of makes it go away for the moment. 
Maybe that's through money and material things, just get consumed with that, and that way I don't think about my guilt. Maybe it's through a relationship with another person, and that way I don't feel the guilt. Everybody, I think, is coping in some way with trying to deal with the horrors of this huge tab that we have accrued against our Creator because of our sin. And yet, deep down, all of us know that we can never, ever pay that tab. What are the wages of sin? Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death. I have taken this perfect life that God has given me and I have ruined it. I have have ruined it with my sin. The only way to pay that debt would be to give God a perfect life in return. But I, I... I have no perfect life to give Him. The only life I have is my life and and I made a mess of it. I ruined it. How then can I ever be redeemed? How is it that I can ever be bought back from sin? How can I be bought back and freed from the slavery of sin? That's what we're talking about with redemption. Being bought back from that captivity. Look with me in Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, Paul the the Apostle here talks to us about the eternal plans of God and how God makes it possible for us to be bought back. And it needed one thing and one thing only, and it's something that only Jesus could provide. In Ephesians chapter 1, I'm reading here in verse 7, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption, look at it, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Redemption is found in one place and one place only and that is at the cross. Jesus' perfect blood had to pay that price as nothing else could do. In fact, Peter kind of builds on that idea in 1 Peter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes here in verse 18, here's the value of the cross. Here's the value of the blood that made redemption possible. 1 Peter 1 verse 18. Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed, that in some ways is kind of a synonym for redemption. You were ransomed, you were redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You were redeemed in that way, not with perishable things, with silver and gold. You'd have all the money in the world and it wouldn't be able to redeem you from sin. But verse 19 but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Redemption's found at the cross and only at the cross through Jesus' perfect blood. You know, sometimes people wonder, why did Jesus have to shed His precious blood? Why did Jesus, this, this perfect man who did no wrong, why did He have to die? And the answer to that is simple. And that's because we don't want to die. He died in our place. He bore the penalty for our sins. He buys us back. He redeems us. In short, His death on the cross cancels our debt of sin. Can I work with that that debt idea for just a moment? Can you imagine what it would be like to be indebted Ten million dollars. To be ten million dollars in the hole. Can you imagine that? What if, for example, you needed ten million dollars so that your child could have some life-saving medical procedure or surgery? And the hospital and the doctors and all the people that are in charge of that, they're not going to start, they're not going to do that procedure until you write that check for ten million dollars. 
I can't even begin to imagine being in that position. I mean, how in the world am I going to begin to raise $10 million? You know, having some car washes on a Saturday afternoon. That isn't going to get it done. Picking up a second job or a third job or a tenth job, that's not going to put a dent in $10 million. Even setting up a GoFundMe page on Facebook, that's not going to really get to $10 million. But imagine then that someone comes along and they say, Hey there, I'll write that check. What? Yeah. I'll write that check for you. I'll write that check for $10 million. And they write that check, and your child's able to have the procedure. Let me ask you, how do you feel toward that person? Even more so, how do you feel toward that person whenever you find out that in order for that person to write that check, he had to sell everything that he had? He did. He had to give up everything that he had so that he could then do that thing for you. How do you feel toward that person? How would you feel for someone to pay that kind of debt? Now, as amazing as that is to think about that kind of someone paying that kind of a financial debt, how much more amazing is it to think of Jesus leaving heaven, coming here, and in that sense, he literally gave up everything to suffer and to bleed and to die in order to pay our debt, our debt of sin. How do you feel toward Jesus? The one who has redeemed us from the curse of sin, who has bought us back and set us free. I I tell you, words cannot even begin to express the amount of gratitude and thanksgiving that we would feel for the Lord, for His powerful work of redemption, the redemption that was accomplished in and through the cross. Which brings us one final time to Romans chapter 3. As you turn back to Romans chapter 3, and as we think about these triumphs of the cross, notice the beginning of verse 24, where Paul says that it is by His grace that we are justified. Justified. It is through the cross that we have justification. And justification, I'll just get right to it, it means to be pronounced not guilty. Not guilty. It is through the cross that you and I are able to be declared not guilty of sin. Now, right away, especially if you were hearing that for the first time, unless you were just entirely arrogant, your thought's going to be, whoa, hold on now. I I can't be pronounced not guilty of sin. I know what I've done. I know the kinds of terrible things that I have done. I do. I've done some terribly wicked things in my life. There's no denying it. It was wrong. I sinned. I even knew it when I was doing it. That makes me a sinner. The only thing that ought to be pronounced about me, if we're being honest, is that I am guilty. How in the world can I be justified, be declared not guilty? And the answer to that can be found by looking at the cross. That's where the answer is found. Look in Romans chapter 5. You're still in Romans. Just flip the page. In Romans 5, I'm looking here in verse 18. Paul gives us the scoop on how justification works in Romans 5 verse 18. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
Jesus' death on the cross, that is that one act that Paul is referring to here, that is what makes it possible for sinful men and sinful women to be declared not guilty, justified. God's justice demands a sacrifice for sin. And mercifully, He allowed His own Son, His only begotten Son, to be that sacrifice. And as a result... As a result, you and I, we do not have to receive the sentence of death. Instead, we can have justification and life. And yet, even as I say all of that, somebody's probably wondering, well, well, why does God have to go through all of that? You know, why doesn't God just forgive? I mean, He's God, right? He has the power to do that. Why doesn't God just say, You're forgiven and just be done with it, you know? Why does there need to be a sacrifice? Why did He have to send Jesus, His only begotten Son, to endure all of that pain and suffering on the cross? I mean, if God wants to forgive people so badly, and He does, then why why doesn't He just do it? And that is a good question. But let me answer that question with a question of my own. What would you think of a judge who says, not guilty to everybody who comes before him in his courtroom. What would you think of a judge who says not guilty, especially to people who absolutely are guilty? You know, when people come into a court of law, what do they expect? They expect justice, don't they? They expect justice to be administered, and the judge now is going to wield his gavel, and he's going to say, not guilty. You are not guilty. I I, I just have that power. The power is vested in me to do that. You get off scot-free. What would you think of a judge like that? I don't think we would think very highly at all of a judge like that, would we? And furthermore, what would you think of a law that could just be broken without consequences? You know, you break the law and that doesn't matter. Who cares? No big deal. Judge just waves his hands and there's no consequences whatsoever. I'll tell you this, we would not value that kind of law very highly, would we? Maybe even more to the point for us now. If I break... God's law. If I live in rebellion to His will, and God just waves His hands and says, hey, no big deal, you get off scot-free, then isn't it so that if my actions have so little consequence, isn't it so that that means that I, my life, is of little consequence? That if everything can just be trivialized and dismissed with the wave of a hand, that really I'm not of any value myself? That's depressing to think about. And I think it would be fair to ask as well, that if God was to just kind of forgive like that, then what reason is there for me to ever leave sin? What reason is there for me to ever live holy and godly and righteously? You know, God is redeeming us, but He is redeeming us for a specific purpose, and that purpose is for us to live in a better way. But if forgiveness is just so easily dispensed, then where is the incentive for me to ever climb up out of the muck and the mire and the filth of sin? But look at the cross. Stare at the cross. Think about the cross. Because the cross tells us that God is absolutely just. Romans 3.26 goes on to say, No one can accuse the judge of being unfair, can they? You look at the cross. Because the cross tells us that God's law is supreme. That God's law is not to be broken with impunity. 
And when I look at the cross, I understand that my actions, they do matter. That I as a person, I matter. Because I can, I can be lost. And so the more that I look at the cross, I understand my need to turn to the cross. To turn to Jesus. I realize that I need to leave sin because sin is what put Jesus on the cross in the first place. It is the cross. And what Jesus did there that allows us to be declared not guilty. It is the cross that is able to take the most vile and wretched sinner, whether we're talking about an adulterer or a thief or a drunkard or a murderer or a homosexual, and it makes it possible for them to be washed, sanctified, justified, as 1 Corinthians 6 says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus achieved that for us. And He did that through the cross. Now let me just say right here, that three points, three points does not even begin to exhaust all of the triumphs of the cross. Time just isn't going to allow us to talk about reconciliation. That's a great Bible term. Or atonement. That's a significant idea. Or to even talk about all the numerous prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled through the cross and how that just strengthens the veracity of the Scriptures. We could talk all day about the triumph of the cross. We could do that for several days. In fact, even in heaven, we will still be talking about and thinking about and praising God for the cross. In Revelation 5 and in verse 12, John sees this vision of a mighty throng in heaven and they're assembled around the throne and they're singing with a loud voice. And what are they singing? They're singing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, the Lamb who went to the cross. Even in heaven, throughout all of eternity, a single event on a hill outside of Jerusalem will be our anthem and it will be celebrated forever, the cross of Jesus. But I need to close with one final verse and one final admonition, and it's in Galatians 2. Would you be queuing up Galatians chapter 2? You know, my greatest concern with preaching about the cross is that we all read all of these passages... And we observe and look at all of the nice, clean points that are made there. And we think to ourselves, hmm, yeah, that was, uh, that was really good. That was really interesting. Josh, hey, thanks for putting all that together. Thanks for the good information. And as a result, we then go home and we go about our daily lives just totally unchanged. I need you to listen to me very carefully right now. The cross of Jesus is not just verses to be read. And it's not just doctrine that needs to be understood, mentally understood. No, the cross of Jesus, what Christ accomplished for us, it ought to affect how we live. The Apostle Paul says so in Galatians 2. Do you got that verse? Galatians 2, look in verse 20, where Paul writes there, I have, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave Himself for me. That is where all of this is going. How are you different? 
How are you changed because of the triumphs of the cross? How does this affect and change how you live? What in your life demonstrates daily that the cross is important and significant to you? I cannot say this strongly enough. Someone died for you. And not just any someone. The greatest someone who's ever lived. No kidding about that. He gave His life to save you. How have you responded? How are you currently responding to that overwhelming truth? I certainly could stand up here and I could enumerate a long list of applications about how about doing this or how about doing some of that, but I simply just want to echo what Paul says in this verse. Christ lives in me. The cross is so overwhelming. It is so amazing and so incredible that the only response that is possible is to say, I will live my life to glorify Him. He died for me. That's what the cross does. It moves us from me-centeredness to Christ-centeredness. It changes who owns my life. It's no longer I owning me. No, I now. there's been a, a change of title. I now belong to Jesus. He bought me back. I owe Him everything. He deserves the service of my life in everlasting gratitude and thanksgiving. It's not about me anymore. It can never be about me anymore because my life is His life. For I have seen and I have understood and I have grasped the accomplishments and the triumphs of the cross of Christ. Would you bow with me? Let's pray about that. Our dear gracious God, our Father in heaven, Father, after studying what your word has said to us about your great plan of salvation, about what your Son has accomplished for us through his sacrificial death, Father, the only thing that we know to say to you at this time is thank you. Father, thank you so much for loving us, for caring for us, for allowing your Son to endure what He endured on the cross so that we might be brought into a right relationship with you, so that we can have our sins be propitiated for, that your wrath would be appeased, that we can have redemption, we can be bought out of the slavery of sin, and we can be brought into your possession. And We're so thankful that we can be justified. Father, deep down we know that we are guilty. But we thank you so much that through Jesus we can be declared not guilty. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you. We realize, Father, that not not even all the thank yous in the world, not all the good deeds in the world could ever begin to repay you for what you have done for us. But what we pray, Father, is that through our lives, through our actions, through our words, through our attitudes, through our deeds, that in every possible way and every single day, that we would demonstrate that Christ is in us. Help us, Father, to be living manifestations of Christ and Him crucified in our lives so that we might lead others to You and they might know these glorious benefits as well. Father, thank You again. We thank Jesus. We thank You for Your love for us. and We pray that You would bless us as we continue on throughout life's journey so that one day we can be with You in heaven for all time. And it is through the name of Your precious Son, Jesus, that we pray. And amen.